Hi, I'm David Freudberg from Humankind. Occasionally on this podcast, we present classic programs from our archive, including the one you'll hear now from our series, Kindred Spirits. For that program, we sought out people of many backgrounds, traditions, and life experiences to understand the personal beliefs that give them purpose and animate their activities. If you like what you hear on this podcast, we're asking for your help to keep it going. Please visit humanmedia.org, and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings and mercy of Allah be God. with you. Allahu Akbar. Our Father, who art in heaven, in te domine speravi, non confunda in aeternum. In you, O Lord, I trust. May I never Shema be confounded. Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Walk cheerfully over the earth, answering that of God in every one. You're listening to Kindred Spirits. Welcome to Kindred Spirits. I'm David Freudberg. Our guest today is Robert Mueller, sometimes called Optimist in Residence here at the United Nations in New York. His official function is as coordinator of the UN's 30 specialized agencies. He's the secretary of the Economic and Social Council at the UN. Born in Belgium and imprisoned by the Nazis in World War II, Mr. Mueller has devoted his life to working for peace. His work represents the quest for spiritual understanding in the theater of world conflict. One of the points you make in your wonderful book, Most of All They Taught Me Happiness, is that by and large you've given up reading newspapers because for you they seem to spread only ill feeling, or mostly. Are newspapers that bad? I believe so, as far as I'm concerned. I've been reading them now for uh, almost 59 years, uh, since I'm that old. And uh, I, I seldom see a newspaper that carries good news. Now, I've discussed this with journalists, because since we have a whole press corps at the United Nations, and their claim is that the people want to have bad news, that good news do not uh, sell. Now, uh, of course, newspapers are dealing with the immediate problem, what's happened today. But if we pay too much attention to the daily problem, uh, then we lose sight of uh, uh, evolutionary problems, which are perhaps more important than the daily problem. So what I do is that I have a quick glimpse at the index in the morning in order not to be totally ignorant but I'm not going to let myself wire in by the type of pessimism that can derive from this. If you really read a newspaper uh, seriously in the morning, you're a nervous wreck for the rest of the day. The, the, the world looks like a, a place of disaster, which is not the case. Uh, uh, let's not uh, forget that uh, you have billions of people who wake up in the morning, go to their job, come home in the evening, and are quite happy and peaceful people. And about those, nobody ever writes. I would hope that uh, 
the newspapers would go back to where they were in the last century when you didn't have TV, nothing else. And in the newspapers then you had also the good news, the nice little stories, the, the things which were read in the evening around the lamp. I, if I were the head of a newspaper, I, I would really instruct my journalists, say, look, I, at least I want to have one-third of good news. Give me good stories. The journalists don't like them because a good story is much more difficult to write than a bad one. You see, if you have a, a catastrophe somewhere, the news isn't the catastrophe itself. But to write a beautiful story about something nice that happened somewhere requires a lot of work and uh, a lot of art. And the journalists usually do not like to take uh, this uh, type of pain to write a beautiful, moving story. And very often we are, as uh, world officials, we are frustrated when we see the marvelous extent of cooperation uh, of uh, experts and people from all races getting together, working hard to find solutions for this planet, that this is not known to the public. It's not known to the children in the school. You know, I, uh, I'm giving about 160 to 180 speeches a year. Anyone who comes to the UN with a group of school children, I go down, speak to them, you see. And they leave uh, happy that I can show them what humanity is doing. And I don't have to lie. All I have to do is to take the daily journal of the UN and say, okay, let's go now through the various meetings which are taking place in this house, you know. And then you're surprised that you have astronauts meeting with other astronauts, that you have people dealing with the preservation of the species, uh, a conference on giving, giving women more rights, uh, that you have a meeting where the handicapped people are getting together in order not to be uh, forgotten in the world either, that you have other meetings of UNICEF dealing with the rights of the children. It's a beautiful organization, and I would like the journalists to once in a while tell the people a beautiful story. You know, they come out with the beautiful stories around Christmas, but we need beautiful stories to give hope to humanity uh, practically all year round, without, of course, uh, omitting the catastrophes and the things that go wrong, you know. I believe firmly that uh, life, you have to believe in life as an individual, as a family, as a city, as a nation, and as a human family. And I think this is it, that there are too few people. I think life, after all, is not so bad. To be alive is a very great thing, especially in a country like the United States. Uh, and we ought to be grateful for it. Uh, we ought to wake up in the morning and thank God for being alive. It is, life is a great mystery, the, you know. You take a human person, uh, just think of those trillions of cells, the, s the atoms, the subatoms, the, the mechanism of having one human person, it's a true miracle. And once in a while you have to, we have to remember that just to have eyes to see the light, to see a flower, to see the creation, is tremendous. This, few years of consciousness of the mysterious universe for me are always a source of astonishment and there is no one that will ever bring me down from this position since i was a child i always felt that to be uh, alive is divine and i think it is a manifestation of the phenomenon of life or of divine phenomenon throughout the uh, throughout the universe that very optimistic posture actually saved your life at several points during World War II. 
in the book you wrote of what must have been on one level a very harrowing encounter with the Gestapo in a building in France. I wonder if you could tell us how your attitude helped you get through that. Well, it was triggered off by <coughs> a friend of mine who was a student with me at the University of Heidelberg and uh, whom one day we found in his room uh, lying down in blood uh, because he had very advanced uh, tuberculosis. They took him to a hospital and when I visited him, he said, look, get me any books you can find by a certain Dr. Coué, who comes from Lorraine, where I come from in France. Before giving him the books, I read them myself. They were not big books. And I was astonished by a very simple life philosophy that was uh, developed by a man who was a student together with Freud in Paris. And uh, his uh, view was simply that imagination is preventing us from doing certain things. For example, he has a famous example. He said, if you took a board about 12 feet long and uh, two or three feet wide, you put it on a floor and you ask any person to walk on it, he will walk. There's no problem. But you put the same board between the spires of two cathedrals or of two skyscrapers and the people will fall off because they see the image that they are going to fall down. And he says, therefore, your imagination is uh, preventing you from uh, living fully, and therefore, you have to uh, domesticate your imagination, and you have to imagine a certain thing that is possible. And when I was about to be arrested by the Gestapo being on top of a building and trying to figure out what could happen, they had already surrounded the building. They were visiting one room after the other. I said to myself, this man was right. I remembered what he said. And I said to myself, well, let me imagine that I can have the fun of escaping them. From that moment on, I was no longer scared. I was absolutely peaceful and serene. And my mind began to function correctly. I said, now, how could I do this trick to the Germans? And knowing the German mentality, I said, the only thing you can do to these people is uh, to do it non-logically, because they think of everything except the illogical. So the most illogical thing for me was just to walk down in the middle of them. And that's what I did. I changed, of course, my hair, took off the glasses, tried not to appear for what I was. And I went down there. I saw this group of men, they had arrested my secretary, and I asked my secretary, what is the whole turmoil about? And she said, they are looking for Mr. Parizo, that was my war name. And then I said, Parizo? But I just saw him five minutes ago on the fourth floor, you see. And the whole bunch of Gestapos ran, ran up there to catch Mr. Parizo, and I was down there, you see. And uh, I walked out of the building. Now, if I had been scared, if uh, uh, I, I had seen myself being arrested, I would have never done it. But I saw the other image, let's see if I cannot have the fun of escaping them. And I did something which was totally unexpected to them, but which came to my mind only because I had followed the Kue uh, method of having no fear. And I think this is important for also the functioning of your uh, body. Now, can you imagine when you have such a tremendous being as uh, your own body, mind, and so on? The best cure is to let it go. It repairs itself. You are bleeding, it repairs itself. I think we have constantly adaptations of our body to all kinds of little sicknesses. It does it itself. Of course, what you need to give 
is you have to give a central command to your body that it works well. Those little cells are not going to do it completely by themselves. Therefore, when you wake up in the morning or during the day, you just take a big breath and you say, life is beautiful, you know, it works well. I am a healthy person. And all these little cells are going to get the encouragement the same way as if you want to have a boat on the, on the, on the sea, you have to have a captain who gives them encouragement that says, let's go ahead. So this is a, a fundamental thing. Norman Cousins, as a matter of fact, who has often discussed this with me, uh, he had his own uh, theory that laughter is helping. It's the same thing. It is to encourage the good functioning of your body. Of course, then, in order to give it the best chance, uh, take good care of it. Uh, do not uh, drink too much alcohol. Do not uh, smoke. Do not do the things with which those little cells will have a hell of a time, you know. But beyond that, I think belief in life, happiness and joy and laughter and just being happy to be alive has tremendous effects on your functioning of everything. You cannot imagine how many letters I have received from people. People sometimes visit me at the UN, bring me a little gift and say, thanks to you, I got a job. I said, what? Yes, well, you know, I was a beaten guy wherever I turned up. Nobody wanted to give me a job. But then I read your book and I said, let me see if I cannot have a cheerful appearance. And then they were saying, I, I will get the job, I will get the job. And then the miracle happens, they get the job, and they come to thank me for it. Just by my little story, how I escaped from the Gestapo. So there must be a miracle in the positive attitude. As Norman Cousins says in the preface, this was a great revelation to me, when he says pessimism has its own nutrients. If you begin to be pessimistic, you are working your yourself down to sickness and to, to a nervous breakdown. It's the word, nervous breakdown. Well, I think that through, po through optimism and cheerfulness, you can do a build-up. And this has nothing to do with the outside world. It is you, you have somewhere in your mind, as a matter of fact, the brain experts now have come to the conclusion that there is a very protected area in the brain where there is this central command with which we give the general current that makes us function. And if we put this on the black or on the negative, the whole thing goes down. If we put it on the positive, then you have the best possible functioning. Are you able to maintain this positive functioning all the time, or are there moments when you dip into depression? And if so, how do you climb back up? Well, I think every person has to know himself. Uh, you have to watch yourself, how you function best. For example, I function best uh, at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. So I wake up, uh, the ideas come, I go to the living room, I write, I do all kinds of things. I'm very peaceful, the family doesn't disturb me. So that is my best moment, and of course I utilize it fully. During the day, everything is also fine. Uh, although on the day, during the day, you're more bombarded by others. So I would say that my day is used as opening the computer, listening to others, getting information in. Then in the evening when I go home, at that time I'm usually uh, tired. Uh, now in order to fight this tiredness, what you can do is either take a cup of coffee that will wake you up for a while, or then just to relax totally and to watch a TV program or to read a book the evening is not my best moment.
And then the night, the computer, through dreams and everything, puts everything in place. And then I wake up in the morning, and here come the ideas, here come the proposals, here come the speeches, the essays. That is all done between 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock, you see. This morning I woke up at 3, worked until 5, went back to bed, but those two hours, they were very, very productive. I'm alone with myself. I don't really have to work. I just let it come out of me. You know, it's a natural product, product of my uh, being. And otherwise, also, there is a rule I have. It is that uh, never give up. In other words, you can have a proposal uh, for world peace that do not have any illusions that it can be done immediately. So you have to work along ahead of time. For example, I've made a proposal that we should have a bimillennium celebration of life the same way as we're the bicentennial. Now, that takes time to get repeated by the people, to have speeches made, to have institutes created. Now, I'm not disappointed because it doesn't happen overnight. But I know that if I work long enough at it, we are going to have a bimillennium. I can swear to you that we're going to have it. I remember years ago I proposed uh, world conferences uh, on the elderly. I proposed an international year or a world conference on the disabled persons. That was 10 years ago. It's only now in 1981 that it took place. All this needs time, but never give up. I never give up even the impossible. And I do not want to have a guarantee that it will work because maybe it will be the people after I die who will have to continue. And another rule is I have my view, my priorities, but they are very numerous. In other words, people sometimes tell me, Mr. Muller, why do you work in so many directions? I say it's very simple. The more you put irons in the fire, the more you can take them out ripe. So that therefore, very often my second said, you know, Mr. Muller, your idea which you started five years ago, today here is the result. I said, yes, because you have to put the iron in the fire. So everywhere, put irons in the fire, and then you come to a point where many things succeed. But very often people are so nervous about getting an immediate objective that they don't give it time. Give it time. A seed takes a certain time until it is a f uh, grown plant. You cannot expect the grown plant to be here overnight. It's a big mistake, especially when you come to a planet like ours, which has had such a checkered history. We're talking with Robert Muller. He's author of Most of All They Taught Me Happiness. He works here at the United Nations trying to facilitate communications among 30 specialized agencies. I'm sure that doing diplomatic work must sometimes place you against very slim odds. What are the human qualities that encourage understanding and unity among human beings? Primarily uh, the constant search. In other words, uh, you have people who have been prepared by university to be an economist or, the, or a lawyer or a technologist or a diplomat. Among these crowds of people who are produced by universities, there are a number who seem to be different because they search fundamental answers to the mystery of life and death. In other words, you have to be a seeker and you have to try to find out, to adapt, to learn all your life long. And uh, the best people in the diplomatic community and among international civil servants are the people 
who say yes to life, who are always trying to be on the side of good rather than bad. They are servants. They are rather spiritual people. They are philosophers. And you have more and more of them. And there's a great community between them. Because it doesn't matter whether they're a Buddhist or a Catholic or whether they're a communist or a capitalist. It doesn't matter or whether they're a woman or a man or a black person or a white person. You have among all of them a number of people who are in love with life. It is this love with life this, that makes them ask the fundamental questions. And it is these people then who come out with the proposals. The bureaucrats will not come up with proposals. The bureaucrats, they live on what others have initiated. But you have always a percentage of people who are seekers, who try new things, who analyze the world, try to have a synthetic view and say, well, maybe we could do this and that. And these diplomats, they work together all the time. And you have many, many of them in the United Nations. That's a great, great thing. But the diplomat who just wants to have a nice life, a big car and cocktail parties, uh, he doesn't work out here in this house. He will leave very soon because the, to be a diplomat at the UN is probably the hardest diplomatic post in the world. They have to deal with so many things, scientific problems. They have to attend meetings until late in the night. And then they have to send uh, cables home so that a man who wants to have a beautiful, uh, luxurious diplomatic life, he doesn't last long at the UN. He disappears and we never see him come back. One diplomat I know you've been deeply impressed with was U Tant, formerly the Secretary General of the United Nations. How did his spiritual search affect his work for world peace? Well, as a matter of fact, we had two uh, great spiritual leaders at the UN. The one was Doug Hammarskjöld and the other one, Utant. I knew them both, and they were of two completely different spiritual characteristics. Uh, Doug Hammarskjöld was the great individualist, the seeker, who, as he said, negotiated with God. And uh, his markings are a marvelous book where you see how almost on every page there is this dialogue with God where he was seeking the answer to his fundamental problems on life and death. Uh, so he ended up practically a mystic, and his favorite readers, uh, readings were about the mystics. Whereas Utant was uh, a nice Buddhist who didn't ask himself many questions beyond Buddhism. He was trained as a Buddhist, and he felt that Buddhism gave him all the answers. So he lived as a humble man, constantly applying the rule that from morning to evening he has to be a good man. In Buddhism you are told that the basis of everything is the individual. You cannot change the rest of the world. That is not up to you. But there is one person you can change. It is yourself. And if you yourself are a kind person, a loving person, an honest person, a person who tells the truth, a person who doesn't lie, a person who doesn't speak badly about others, at least you have begun something. It is an example to others. And if all the four and a half billion people of this planet were like this, maybe we would have peace and happiness. There's a basic uh, tenant of Buddhism, and uh, I learned quite a lot from him. Uh, for example, he had a rule which was uh, to speak only well about other people. But if someone was a bad person, the worst he would do was to keep silent. 
as a rule, as a matter of fact, you also find Muhammad and all the religious readers, leaders are telling you this. So he was a deeply spiritual person. For him, the United Nations was a spiritual organization. Uh, he sometimes described all the charter in terms of, of uh, Buddhist words. Uh, we have also had the visits of the popes, whom he invited to the United Nations, as you know. I was in charge of the visit of the Pope John Paul II. And uh, all these religions around the world uh, are seeking a peaceful planet, the fulfillment of life. And I believe that we will make it. As a matter of fact, uh, if, if you want me to tell you the, my most fundamental belief, is that I have the impression that this planet, the life forms on this planet, and everything we are doing is not just uh, uh, the effect of uh, accident. There is The universe must have something in mind with us. And even when there is a conflict, when there is a divergence, the divergence and the conflict has the objective to find adaptation and harmony. It is quite possible that on this particular planet, there is in the universe one of the most tremendous examples of what the universe has in terms of a cosmic destiny in store for us. And soon, I'm sure, we will have to sit down with the religions, and I would advise all the religions to get together, and try to write down and tell the political man what these cosmic laws are. As you will have observed, all the uh, leaders, Jesus, uh, Quran, uh, it always came from out there. There were messages from outer space, there are messages from the universe, and they all more or less said the same thing. For example, thou shalt not kill. Now, if you had on this planet a worldwide rule, thou shalt not kill, not even in the name of a nation or a religion, you would have peace. My advice to every individual would be what I apply to myself and what Utant applied to himself and the life Hammarskjöld had, namely, let's start with myself. And if you are a peaceful person, if you are a happy person, if you have cleared your own little ground around you, then you begin to irradiate. You are no longer the victim of others, but you are a positive force. And then as the Hindu says, your karma is beginning to have effects. And in one lifetime, how many people do you meet? Thousands and thousands. The people to whom you write, the people to whom you speak, the possibilities you have from morning to evening to show a happy face, to show a good philosophy. This is incredible. This is the great democracy which every individual can start right away. And if we are more to do it, then finally these governments, they will listen to the people. Now they don't listen to the people. The newspapers will listen to people who, when I say that I don't read the newspapers, they're beginning to be interested. They say, why? Ha! Huh. Well, then maybe they're going to do something which I would like to see in the newspapers. And if the people protest by saying, I do not want to read you drunk, I want to have something different, they will change too. But as long as we do not say it, so there is a tremendous force in the individual. You know, every individual is a cosmos. I cannot rule the other cosmoses, but uh, I can irradiate what I believe in after I have figured out more or less what I believe in. So that I would advise to people, do not let yourself be too much impressed by what surrounds you. Be a positive force yourself, and you cannot imagine what you will get in return. 
you will for every act of happiness, of joy, of cheerfulness, you will get a hundredfold return. Thank you very much for your joy. Talking today with Robert Mueller. He is author of Most of All They Taught Me Happiness. He works here at the United Nations and is irradiating as we speak. Spirits is produced by David Freudberg and Public Media Foundation, with production assistance from Lee Ellen Marvin, theme music by Russ Berenberg and Alan Byrne, studio recording at WGBH, Boston. If you'd like to receive a cassette tape of this program, or if you have questions or comments, we warmly invite you to write us at Kindred Spirits, Post Office Box 777, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 02139. That's Kindred Spirits, Box 777, Cambridge, Mass, 02139. Special thanks to the Satellite Program Development Fund at National Public Radio, the Permanent Charity Fund of Boston, the Campbell and Hall Charity Fund, and public radio stations WGBH, WNYC, and WFCR, whose generous support made Kindred Spirits possible. Thank you very much for listening. And may the spirit of unity bring you peace. This is the Public Radio Cooperative. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.